All right, we are going to continue our study of how to study the Bible. Up to this point in this quarter, we've been focused on the things we should be looking for as we read the text. We've been focused on the fact that how we read and what we take from what we read is the critical first step. Because what we're trying to do, and and once again I want to plug this book, Grasping God's Word, because I am uh, not showing quotations, but just about every word that will appear on the screen in some way, shape, or form came from this book, and I'm trying not to commit copyright infringement. So this is the book it's all based from. But we're trying to understand the interpretive process where we're going from the text being written to a people in a particular time and place and how it applies to us in our time and place. And we're trying to uh, go through the process of understanding what it meant to them in their town, in their culture, in their day and age, dealing with that river of divide, those things that separate us from them, developing a principle that will bridge the gap between us and them, and, and, and then consulting the rest of Scripture to see what it says on the principle that we developed before we make application to ourselves. And we are two-thirds of the way through this quarter, and we're still on step one. That just is to say, hey, I'm not going to get through all five steps, but if we can get step one and two down, the rest is a little bit easier. So we're focused still on this step one. We've been focused on reading. Now we're going to be focused on context. We need to understand context in this process. To grasp God's word, we must understand the meaning of the text in context and apply that meaning to our lives. We've got to understand what it meant to them back then. Context takes two major forms when it comes to the biblical text. The first is the historical cultural context. Sometimes we just refer to this as the background information. The other is the literary context. Tonight we're going to focus on that historical cultural context, and then the intent is next week to focus on the literary context. So I'm going to throw up a few quotes on the screen here for a moment just to help us understand what we mean by the historical cultural context. Historical cultural context involves the the biblical writer, the biblical audience, and any historical cultural elements touched on by the passage itself, such as geography, social customs, religion, economy, and politics. Now, you'll you'll hear preachers do this a lot, Um, and and the the ministers here in particular and the ministers of the roundtable, we would engage in this exercise often at the start of a study. We would walk us through some of the background information for each passage that might be necessary for understanding it. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is finding and understanding that background information. Now, here's why it matters. God did not dictate most of the Bible in the first person. Instead, God, who is the ultimate source of all that's in the Bible, spoke through human writers of Scripture who were the immediate source of the content in the Bible to address the real-life needs of people at a particular time in a particular place. Yes, God is the source of everything in Scripture, but He used human agents, their vocabulary, their situation, their time and place to communicate a message that underlying that message has an eternal uh, application. And so we've got to recognize how God chose to speak his word in a particular time and in a particular culture in a particular place. So since God spoke his message in specific historical situations, that is to to people living in particular places, speaking particular languages, adopting a particular way of life, 
Since God spoke his message in specific historical situations, we should take the ancient historical cultural situation seriously. We need to understand what the message meant to that audience at that time in order to appropriately apply it to ourselves. And the way we approach the Bible, the way we listen to God, for lack of a better word, should match how God gave us the Bible, the way he chose to speak. Or to say that another way, the way we listen to God, meaning our interpretive approach, must honor the way God chose to communicate. We need to respect the fact that God chose to communicate his word in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. We need to respect the fact that God chose to reveal his word during the... uh, uh, B.C. time period if we're talking Old Testament and the first century if we're talking New. We need to appreciate the culture that he chose to to speak that message through, and we need to try to understand it. And the truth is that each passage of Scripture was God's word to other people before it became God's word to us. So we've got to appreciate it, what the message meant to the original audience before we can apply it to today's audience. All that's to show just how important understanding context is. Now, what are the things we need to consider when we're looking at historical, cultural context? The first thing we need to consider is the biblical writer. We need to consider who the author of each text is. Because God chose to work through human authors as the immediate source of his inspired word, the more we know about the human author, the better. So try to find out as much as you can about the writer's background. Ask questions like, where does he come from? When does he write? What kind of ministry does he have? Now, the the truth is, this can be challenging when it comes to certain books of the Bible. It can be easy on others. Uh, The epistles are pretty easy. Most of the epistles, not all of the epistles, but most of the epistles tell us who the author is. And most of those authors we're familiar with because they appear in the narrative of the New Testament. And so you take all of the Pauline letters, you know a pretty good amount about Paul because he's a significant character in the book of Acts. You've got the two letters of Peter. You know a pretty good amount of Peter because of the Gospels as well as the first half of the book of Acts. You've got three letters by John, and we know a good bit about John because of his appearances in the Gospels as well as the book of Acts. And we have this letter by James, the brother of Jesus, who makes an appearance in the book of Acts. He's not, a, he's not as significant as Peter and Paul and John, but we do have some information about him. So we've got these guys who write letters. We, we've got some context on these authors. But then you get to uh, a book like Hebrews. We're having to take guesses at who the author is because we don't know specifically who that is. You can get to the Old Testament and some of the books you don't exactly know who authored. And we can make some pretty educated um, guesses at those authors based on things that appear in context. But it can be harder to determine who the author is in some texts as opposed to others. But for those that we do know who the author is, we can draw some conclusions. I want to give you a couple of examples on why we should take this stuff into consideration and, and what it should look like. So if you go to the book of Amos, Amos is a prophet, one of the minor prophets, which speaks not to their importance, but to uh, the length of their their books. When it comes to Amos, look at verse, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. 
you look at that single verse, what are some conclusions you can draw about Amos? He's a shepherd. But wait, this is a book of, this is a prophetic text. Shouldn't he be a prophet? So that's a great observation to make that employment-wise, he's not a professional prophet. He's a shepherd. What else do you learn about Amos here? Don't overcomplicate it. The time frame he existed in, you have references to Isaiah, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So you can go back to the, to the uh, books of Chronicles and 2 Kings and, and texts like that and find out where he would have fit into the chronology of Israel. We know based on the fact that it's Isaiah and, and Jeroboam that what we have here is a prophet during the divided kingdom. And so we can place Amos in context with the history, the timeline of Israel. What else do you notice? An earthquake. Now that's interesting. It would be worth researching, trying to find out what you can about an earthquake that occurred to help place that timeline as well. Where's Amos from? Tekoa. Not Tekoa, Georgia. It's spelled differently. But he's from Tekoa. It's worth finding out where Tekoa is. And if you do the research, you'll find out that Tekoa is in the southern kingdom of Judah. We're dealing with a, a, a situation in the divided kingdom where you have the southern half is, is known as Judah. The northern half is known as Israel. And they are separate entities at this point with their own kings and their own religious centers. Because the northern kingdom has split off and, and established their own place of worship that's not Jerusalem, that's not the temple, that's not associated uh, with the structure that God ordained to be created. And so you've got these complications. Well, he's from the southern kingdom. But if you go to chapter 7 and you look at verse 14 and 15, it says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. We'll come back to that. Nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. All right, so we get a little bit more uh, understanding of Amos's background. Not only is he a shepherd, which has already been acknowledged in the first verse, but he was never a prophet. God appeared to him out of the blue and said, I need you to do this job. Amos is not trained in this. Amos is a blue-collar guy who, what we would say today, has been given a vocational ministry assignment. He's not, and he also acknowledges that he's not the son of a prophet. Like, this isn't in his heritage. This isn't his upbringing. This is completely out of his wheelhouse to go be a prophet, but he does it. He also says that he's been sent by the Lord to Israel. That's a reference to the northern kingdom at this time. He's a southerner assigned to the north. That's important to know about Amos because he's not prophesying to his fellow uh, citizens of the southern kingdom. He's having to go out of his area and into an area that is... Um, there, there's not as quality relationships. We'll just say it that way. He's out of place as a prophet, which is unique. So you get all these facts. Those are the kind of things you're looking for when you're learning about the biblical author of that particular text. You want to notice those things. Let's do another one. Let's look at, uh, which one did I put up here? 
Let's look at 1 Timothy. Now this we're going to look in reference to Paul. Again, I mentioned earlier that Paul is probably one of the easiest ones for us to work with, but I want you to look at this text in 1 Timothy. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What do you pick up on about Paul here? What was that? Forthright. About what? About himself. But what about himself in particular? About him being wrong in Judaism. Now, the one thing we'll notice in a, a passage in a little while is he was very um, sincere in his Jewish faith, but he came to recognize that the way he was practicing it and, and the way he was unaccepting uh, of Christ as the Messiah was wrong. Not only is he admitting that he's wrong, what else is he admitting about his past? What? He did it in ignorance. Yes. What else? He was blasphemous. What else? There's a big, bold word there that should stand out to you that begins with a P and ends with an persecutor. He's talking about his being a persecutor. So that should, you should go, okay, persecutor, that's significant. And if you've never read Acts, you need to go back and read Acts. You need to go find out what he's talking about. What, what does he mean he's a persecutor? What does he mean when he says, I'm the foremost of sinners? There's context there regarding who or what Paul feels about himself, what he thinks about himself in his past. Now, he, he's boldly pronouncing how great Jesus Christ is to have forgiven him of that past. But that sets context when we know the story in Acts chapter 9 of how he was persecuting the church and how he was on his way to Damascus with letters to arrest Christians. He had been throwing them in jail. He had appeared at the stoning of Stephen. And, and he's on his way, and the, the Lord intervenes with this great light, and he is converted. And that whole story helps us make sense of him calling himself the foremost of sinners or the chief of sinners. That's, that's a, 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 an interesting observation. That in his eyes, he's the worst. Maybe it's not because he, he contributed to killing or imprisoning Christians, but because he was so adamant, so vigilant, so passionate about it, and he views himself as the worst there. But when he was converted, he, he, he took those traits and put them in the, in, for the right purpose. Um, that's why he will refer to himself as, as having zeal above everyone else. That's a good observation. So we, we, when we're looking at context and we're looking at Paul, we need to keep in mind Paul's history. We need to uh, process that. Another thing to look at, and we'll do this in an exercise later, 
when you're reading one of Paul's letters especially, you want to find connections between him and, and the person he's writing to or the place he's writing to. And if it did it figure into the storyline, we can read in Acts. If he's writing to the church in Colossae, when did he visit Colossae and what happened there? If he's writing to Timothy, what were his interactions with Timothy like? How did Timothy appear in his life? That sort of thing. You, you, want, to, to find, you want to make those context connections. So the biblical writer, we, let's talk about that a little bit more. Whoever the author is, we need, we need some, uh, to work with that context. And I cannot move it forward. Is anybody back there? Okay, I can't, I can't move it. There it goes. There it goes. All right, biblical writer. Also, also with this one, along with knowing the writer's background, you will also want to understand more about the specific relationship between the writer and the people he was addressing. That's what I was just talking about. So let me uh, show you this. We've been studying Jonah on uh, Sunday nights. Just started that one two weeks in. And uh, understanding Jonah's relationship with the Ninevites is kind of significant. And I haven't done this as fully as I could have, but I want you to journey with me to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now you may recall, if you've been here on Sunday nights, one thing that's, that we got to pay significant attention to is we have these references to towns. We've got Nineveh, we got, we've got Joppa, we've got Tarshish, we've got these places. We need context. We need to know where those towns are located, and we need to understand their relationship to each other. And when you investigate it, Tarshish is in Spain, Nineveh is in Iraq, Joppa is in the, the, the coastline of the Mediterranean there, Israel in that area, Palestine. So you've got Nineveh and Tarshish in opposite directions. There's context there. So you need to investigate that. But what we have here is, is Jonah going in the, as far in the opposite direction from Nineveh as he possibly could. What does that tell us about his feelings towards Nineveh? He don't care for the Ninevites. Now, here's the other thing. When you investigate Jonah, and there's one other reference to Jonah in the Old Testament. I mentioned it in our sermon two Sunday nights ago. When you start investigating Jonah, he was a contemporary of guys like Amos and Hosea. And that's helpful to know because when you start peeling back uh, the onion that is Jonah's life, you find out that he is prophesying or he, that prophecies are happening from other individuals, particularly to the northern kingdom of Israel, about their impending doom at the hands of an empire known as the Assyrians. And the capital city of the Assyrians is what town? Nineveh. And so what we have unfolding when you start looking into this context is that Jonah is the prophet being assigned to go into the impending uh, enemy of Israel, going into their territory, going to their capital city, and prophesying to them, encouraging them to repent, even though Israel's about to be attacked by them and conquered by them and dissolved by them. And so the patriot that Jonah is, he really wants nothing to do with Nineveh because they are his people's enemy. 
And so when you get to the end of the book of Jonah and you have this situation starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, running through verse 5, where he is displeased with God sparing the Ninevites, he doesn't like that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of the disaster he said would come on them if they didn't repent. We, find, we, we can draw the conclusion based on context that the reason Jonah can't stand this is because he doesn't want the Ninevites to be spared. And so knowing that relationship between Jonah and Nineveh, knowing that he's an Israelite going into a foreign country, knowing that it's a country that is uh, threatening to his own people, knowing that it's a country that it has been prophesied will conquer his people, all of that contributes to Jonah's feelings towards this audience. And so here, this was written in the book, Grasping God's Word. About the same time that Amos and Hosea were warning Israel of God's judgment soon to occur at the hands of the ominous Assyrians, Jonah was sent to warn Nineveh. And it helps to know that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and that at the heart of Jonah's story lies contempt for the Ninevites, the Assyrians, as well as his fear that God might act with compassion toward his enemies. Knowing that relationship helps significantly. And along with knowing... Um, the relationship with, between the writer and the people, the most important thing to know about the biblical writer is why he is writing. So let me give you an example. When you journey into the Old Testament again, you can go to the book of First and Second Chronicles, and one thing you'll notice about First and Second Chronicles is it repeats a whole lot of material from the Samuel and Kings volumes. Pictured on the screen right now is just, uh, I took First Chronicles, did a a brief review of it, and compared it to where its stories fall in line with the Samuel and Kings volumes. Just First Chronicles. I didn't worry about Second Chronicles. But one thing you'll notice, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are unique in that they are genealogies. Now, you can find some of those genealogies in other texts in the Old Testament, but it's genealogies for nine chapters. Yeah, it's, it's rough going when you're reading it. But that ninth chapter is in particular a, a genealogy of the people who return from the exile. And so in context, you know that First and Second Chronicles are written after the exile, after the Israelites, have been, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon, they had gone into exile, and now they're returning in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they've got this genealogy of those who return. After chapter 9, Chapter 10 starts with the uh, coronation of King David. We're just going to skip past King Saul and jump straight to King David. And David's story goes for most of First Chronicles. What's interesting, though, is that the worst moments in David's life do not appear in First Chronicles. David and Bathsheba never happens in First Chronicles. The events that precede it and the events that follow it do but David's sin with Bathsheba never appears in 1 Chronicles. You know what? When his son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar, that never appears in 1 Chronicles. When Absalom tries to take the throne away from him, that never appears in 1 Chronicles. All the bad stuff in David's life gets left out of 1 Chronicles. And it seems because the author of First and Second Chronicles who many believe is Ezra himself. Oh, and I should, I should add, if you go back, if you look on the right side of the screen, almost to the bottom, 
chapters 22 through 28 is unique to 1 Chronicles. It's all about David's preparations for the temple. All the things he did to prepare Solomon for building it. See, it seems that the chronicler is writing for Israel after the exile. And he's trying to show that God is still very much interested in his people, even after judging them by way of the exile. And so he idealizes David. He even idealizes Solomon by eliminating anything that might tarnish their image, such as the sin with Bathsheba and other events. And in this way, the writer reassures his audience that although God has judged his people, he still loves them and wants them to accomplish his purposes. So First and Second Chronicles has a particular bent to it. It's not a complete story of David's life because it leaves out the worst moments. But it's there for a purpose to build up that community that is re-inhabiting Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and so forth. That's why all of David's preparations for the temple get included in First Chronicles because they're rebuilding that temple. Maybe. Maybe it's uh, reflective of the fact that David's been forgiven. That's a possibility. Uh, but it does, it does bode uh, for this idea that, hey, you're the community that has come back in the vein of David. You're rebuilding like David rebuilt. And if you go to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we did a series on last year, you've probably forgotten because that was a really long series and it wore some of you out, and I know that. But if you go back and look at those books, David gets brought up a few times. This is how David did it. This is what David instructed. This is what David prepared. And that's why we're doing it. We need, it was, we need to do things the way Moses did it. We need to institute the laws that came through Moses, through God via Moses. We need to institute the policies that came to us via David as well. So there is this emphasis there. Let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. Why does Luke conclude Acts without addressing the outcome of Paul's trial? So if you jump over to Luke, Acts chapter 28, the last chapter of Acts, you'll notice in verse 16 that they arrive in Rome finally. After multiple chapters of Paul getting, getting uh, arrested in Jerusalem and then transported to Rome, multiple chapters, multiple testimonies before, before government officials. And finally in chapter 28, verse 16, he arrives in Rome. And then in verse 30 and 31, the last two verses of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the last words of the book of Acts. That is not the way you wrap up a story very well. This is a horrible conclusion if you're concerned about literature. We don't get the end of the story. Where's our Paul Harvey moment? We don't know what happens to Paul. It's not told. But you need to consider, why did Luke write this book, his second part of his two-part volume? Well, if you go back and consider Luke's purpose in writing, it seems his purpose is to show the movement of the gospel, not the movement of Paul. He starts by un unpacking how the, the gospel sprang forth in Jerusalem there on the day of Pentecost and moved its way on these missionary journeys throughout 
Europe to Rome. It seems that what matters most to Luke is the success of the gospel message, not the personal history of one of his messengers. Consider Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Luke's version of the Great Commission, where Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you follow the storyline of Acts, Luke is highlighting every movement of the gospel here. There are witnesses in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 8, we are are transitioning into Judea and Samaria. And by the end of the book, we've made it to Rome finally, where the gospel is being proclaimed. For all intents and purposes, it's not the geographic end of the earth. But once it gets to Rome, it's getting to the world empire that has a, a pulse on every part of the world. From there, it will expand outward. And so Luke has accomplished his mission to tell the story of how the gospel went from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth via Rome, basically. So Luke's purpose in writing is accomplished. That's why we have that kind of ending. So knowing the purpose of a book kind of helps us grasp why it's written the way it is. So we need to understand the author, who he is, Uh, his background, things like that. We need to understand his relationship to his audience. We need to understand the reason he's writing because it will influence, uh, it will help us understand what we're reading. We also need to consider the biblical audience, who who this book is being written to. Discovering the historical cultural context also involves knowing something about the biblical audience and their circumstances. Most, if not all, New Testament letters are situational or occasional, meaning that they were written to address specific situations faced by the churches. Now, I know that limits it to just the New Testament epistles, but they're the ones that we have the easiest audience to determine. You can go to the book of Philippians, and you read that it's from Paul and Timothy to the saints in Philippi. You are given on a silver platter the audience. Other texts, it's not as easy to determine. But let me, uh, let me share with you some things to note when it comes to understanding the audience. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah for a moment. When studying Jeremiah, it helps to know that his prophetic ministry began around 627 B.C. and ended a short time after 586 B.C. Those dates mean nothing to you. But 586 is an important year. 587, 586 B.C. is the year that Jerusalem fell the year of the final exile to Babylon. This means that Jeremiah witnessed the revival under King Josiah, the fall of Assyria, the rise of Babylon, the first siege against Jerusalem, which was in 598-597 B.C., and the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel at that time in 587-586 B.C. And Jeremiah preached against the sins of Judah and predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile during his time. But Jeremiah also spoke powerful words of encouragement and hope during the dark days of the final siege of Jerusalem. We need to understand who he's writing to. Jeremiah is prophesying during a time of turmoil in Jerusalem and Israel in particular. You've got the Babylonian army sitting outside the city, besieging it. And Jeremiah The prophecies have already been made that, hey, Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to fall. And Jeremiah is one of those prophets who communicates that. But then he also gives a passage like this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. You will recognize verse 11. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call up on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Like I said, you probably recognize verse 11. Oh man, that's a great verse when graduation comes around, ain't it? This ain't got nothing to do with an individual. This has nothing to do with God knowing the plans for an individual. It's spoken to the Israelites who are about to go into exile. And he says, 70 years. It'll be 70 years. But I'm going to bring you back. I've got plans for you. And I'm going to bring you back, and you're going to prosper again. But you've got to undergo the exile for 70 years. Understanding that Jeremiah is writing to that group, to to to. Israelites who are about to go into captivity and he's communicating a message of hope from God that, hey, yeah, you're, you're going to deal with this discipline, but when the time is up, I'm going to bring you back because I've got plans for you. Understanding that context and understanding the audience to whom Jeremiah is writing helps us understand the appropriate use of that verse when it's often used out of context. And I'm one who has used it out of context. Or let's think about 1 John. John wrote his letter to Christians wrestling with what many scholars believe was an early form of Gnosticism. Central to this heresy was the belief that spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. The implications of that line of thinking include the fact that Christ wasn't a real human being. That's what they taught. That a person could either treat their material body harshly or indulge it. It didn't matter because the body was evil. The spirit was good. Just worry about your spirit. Don't worry about your body. You can do whatever you want. That line of thinking also taught that salvation was an escape from the body and was accomplished by a special knowledge. Nothing else. You just needed to get to a certain plane of knowledge and you'd be saved. When you know the historical cultural context of Gnosticism and its impact on the the Christians in John's day, It helps you understand some of his message like this. Verse 5 through 8. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is writing to people who think that spirit is good, flesh is bad. And he's telling them, you've got it all wrong. How you walk matters. It's not just about having the right spirit, it's about living the right way. He's telling them that sin is possible, and if you don't think you have sin, you're lying, you're deceiving yourself, and you don't have the truth. Immorality is an issue of how you're walking in the flesh. 
Or think about this passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's writing to a people who believe it's okay to indulge in whatever they want, to do whatever they want with their body. And he's saying the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that sin. And what you have to focus on is doing the will of God, even in your body. Or if you get to 1 John chapter 4 and read these first three verses, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world, but this you know, the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. He's battling a heretical teaching that says Jesus did not come as a human being. And he says that you have to confess that Jesus lived in the flesh. To be in Christ, you have to confess that. Because that is integral to his propitiatory actions. That's integral to his being able to sacrifice himself for us. And notice, what does he call those who do not confess that Jesus came in the flesh? Antichrist. The Antichrist is not some mythical Entity to come in the future and to lead some sort of Armageddon. Anyone who denies that Jesus was in the flesh is the Antichrist. It's kind of simple. He's against Christ because he denies who Christ was. It's not as complicated as some people try to make it out. But when you understand the context, when you understand what's happening in the lives of the people to whom John is writing, you can, you can make connections that the text uh, is Im- implying. So there's another example. So that's understanding the audience. Now, we've talked about the fact that when you're looking for historical, cultural context, you're looking at the author, you're looking at the audience, but there's miscellaneous things you need to look for in the text. There can be tons of historical, cultural context in the text. For instance, you can have historical issues, social issues, geographic issues, religious, political, economic. You're looking for all those kind of things that give you an understanding of what's happening. I'm going to go through uh, several passages here to show you some examples. Let's start with, let's start with the Good Samaritan. We, I could spend all, the rest of the night in this one parable talking about context. I'm only going to come to it twice. <laughs> Verse 30 is where the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable portion starts. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. It helps to understand why Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know, when, uh, when I speak to my mom living in Arkansas, I don't know why I do this, but let's say I'm planning a trip to go to Arkansas. I might say, when we come up there, it's due west. I'm not going up anywhere. Or when she might be coming to visit us, when you come down here, it's east. I don't know where I'm getting up and down from. It just comes naturally. But in the, de- in, in, in the New Testament, you never 
you never leave Jerusalem going up. They always are going down from Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem because of the geography, and they're very intentional about saying that. It, it, does, it does communicate some theology. Jerusalem, where, where God's house is, is elevated, literally elevated geography-wise. It is, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going from 2,500 feet above sea level. I know that's not incredibly high, but 2,500 feet above sea level is where Jerusalem is. Jericho is 700 feet below sea level. You're literally going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 15 miles downhill through a wilderness. A wilderness with caves and rocks and all sorts of hiding places for thieves. The geography matters in the parable because you're going to have these thieves hiding in wait to attack a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. When you can understand the geography, it helps you appreciate the parable all the more. The, the audience Jesus originally told this parable to didn't have to process that like I'm having to do right now. They lived there. They knew that route. They knew what it was like to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. That, understanding that geography helps us. You know what? It also helps us when we get to the book of Revelation. We did a series on Sunday nights with the ministers of the roundtable where we did all seven letters to the uh, churches in Asia at the start of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And every night we started with background. We started with some sort of context because th these letters are so rich with historical cultural context. Now, on the screen is uh, Revelation chapter 3 ver uh, verses 15 through 18. It's the letter to the church in Laodicea, or a portion of it, where Jesus says, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. If you do any digging into this letter to the church in Laodicea, if you do any digging into the history of Laodicea, you're going to find out that economically they were a wealthy city. They were one of the wealthiest cities in the province of Asia in that day. It's because they had three major highways running through their town, they had a tremendous commerce. They also had a huge medicinal community there. They had a medical school. They had nearby hot springs that were used for healing. And they manufactured eye salve there. Did you catch the reference to uh, Jesus instructing them to buy salve for their eyes? Not only did they have the medicinal community and the commerce of a financial community, they also were an industrial community because they manufactured black wool for clothes there. A special black wool. Now Jesus is going to instruct them to buy white garments to wear. There's context economically for this town based on what Jesus is saying. But not only is there economic context, there's ge geographic context. I mentioned those hot springs 
The nearby hot springs were the closest available water for Laodicea. They didn't have a true water source in Laodicea. But those nearby hot springs were there. But if you drank the water in the hot springs due to the mineral content, it would make you vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. Vomit. The way they got water is they had an aqueduct system that carried water from another area several miles to Laodicea. But by the time the water arrived, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm, room temp. When you find all that out, it makes this message from Jesus just so amazing that he brought all this context associated with this town and smashed it into this little short message to them that had spiritual spiritual relevance rather than physical relevance. But that kind of context matters when you're studying God's Word. Let's go on to this, Luke chapter 10. We're going back to um, the Good Samaritan. And you find out in the Good Samaritan parable that a priest and a Levite are the ones traveling on this road, the ones that observe this injured body and leave it on the side of the road. It's worth noting that it's a priest and a Levite. It's interesting because the opposition, I mean, immediately you If you're like me, you go, oh, priest and Levite, Jesus always had bad interactions with these guys. Let me let Brian jump in real quick. From the Laodicea one? Well, guess what? It's not happening tonight. But before this quarter ends, there's going to be either a night or a handout where you get a list of tools for uncovering context, because I don't, because I don't assume that you own the library that I have for that kind of consultation, or the library that Ben Hogan has, and so I'm going to give a list of tools, uh, research material to, that you can access and utilize that helps with context, because historical cultural context is not something the average person knows Roman history so well that they can just automatically boom. And you don't want to just go jump online and go to Wikipedia for all your historical cultural context. Because, well, we know Wikipedia. <laughs> but the internet, is the, the internet is our friend and enemy when it comes to research. And, but I'm, I, thank you for bringing that up because I am going to provide it by the end of this, this course. It will include things like commentaries, Bible encyclopedias, things like that. Because one of the things you you will want from time to time is to appeal to some resources to help you uncover some things that you're not going to get without it. What I want you to notice is in the text, I want you to notice the things that you should be looking at and going, I need to research this further. Why did Jesus refer to I self here in Laodicea? I need to find out if there was any connection. That's, That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But thank you for bringing that up, Brian. Going on to Luke chapter 10, we have a priest and a Levite. If you're like me, I'm like, yeah, Jesus always had issues with the religious leaders, right? He always had conflict with them. But if you look into it further, he had a conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees, not priests and Levites. The priests and Levites weren't the controversial religious leaders. The, the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones that are considered hypocrites, not the Levites and the priests. 
Matthew 23 is where Jesus rails against the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs, not Levites and priests. These are the guys that worked at the temple. These are the guys that oversaw the sacrifices. These are the guys you went to as a regular person with your lamb and fulfilled your responsibilities to the Lord. So Jesus is intentional here about choosing somebody who's not that controversial. Somebody who's not viewed as a hypocrite. Somebody that the average person doesn't have a beef with. And the priests and the Levites, notice they're on this road between Jericho and Jerusalem just like the man who was injured. But we don't know what direction they're walking. What we do know, if you, if you do the research, is a lot of priests lived in Jericho, and they would make the trip to Jerusalem when it was their time to work at the temple. Because there were so many priests that you didn't work every day. This wasn't a 40-hour-a-week job. You had assigned times for you to be at the temple. And though this is a parable and not necessarily a true story, it may be that the priest and Levite in the story, the reason they don't stop and help isn't because they're just absolute jerks. But they may have saw the guy, and note, remember the verse before said they were, he was left for dead. Is it possible that the priest and Levite see this guy on the side of the road, presume he's dead, and they're on their way to the temple. Maybe they're walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, and they see what they assume is a dead body, and instantly in their mind, Mosaic Law kicks in, and they think about Deuteronomy. I should say, no, they think about Numbers, chapter 19 and verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. If they touch that, dead, that presumed dead body, they can't go do their job at the temple. Now, that does not undermine the story. What it means is that the parable takes on a, 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 a little bit different meaning. What is the Samaritan praised for at the end of the story? For showing what? Mercy. What it ends up meaning is that the priest and the Levite chose obedience over mercy. And I'm not trying to undermine obedience but do you remember one time Jesus said that you shouldn't neglect the weightier laws? Do you remember what one of those weightier laws was? Showing mercy. So there's context there. We hear the parable of the Good Samaritan and we just assume, oh, these are the bad guys. And they are in comparison to the Samaritan. But they're not as bad as the Pharisees and scribes. And there may be a different motivation there than we at first see. Also, let's consider Ephesians 5 for a moment. From verse 21 through chapter 6 and verse 9, you have what's called the household codes. You may not have heard that before. But the instructions here, you have instructions to wives, instructions to husbands, instructions to children, instructions to fathers, instructions to servants, instructions to masters. It's built on a, uh, a, a standard process in the, Roman, the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman literature, they often created their own household codes. But in Greco-Roman culture, a household code was written for the head of the house. He didn't receive the instructions for him to do. The household codes were how he should order his house. And it was about what his wife should do and what his children should do and what his servants should do. Paul is taking that system and putting a Christian spin on it. And he's saying, 
here's the household expectations for the wife. But guess what, husbands? You have a household expectation. In the Greco-Roman world, it would have been unheard of for the husbands to be told they have to love their wives. And guess what? Paul takes it and says, here's what's going to be expected of the children. But guess what? Fathers, here's what's expected of you. That's not how the Greco-Roman household codes typically worked. And then he's going to say, hey, and here's the instructions for the servants. But guess what, masters? You have have expectations too. And if you really look back to verse, verse 20, I believe it is, there's this instruction to submit to one another that precedes the household codes. That would have been offensive in the Greco-Roman world for the head of the household to be told he has to submit to his fellow household people. And so we have this context of, the, of this style of instruction that was used in Greco-Roman culture, and Paul's taking it and adapting it in a Christian community with a Christian focus. That helps us understand why he went through these instructions. You can find similar in Colossians. Then you can go to the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, it helps to know the kinsman-redeemer policy of the Old Testament, especially when you look at chapter 1, and you have Ruth and uh, her sister-in-law being instructed by Naomi to part from her. And she talks about how, do I have any, can, can I have another child to give you a husband? That seems a little weird, doesn't it? Like, her two sons have died. Her husband has died. So it's just her and these two daughters-in-law. And they're sticking around, and she's allowing them to leave, but they're refusing to leave. And she says in verse uh, 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. That seems so weird. What's being referred to here is the kinsman-redeemer policy that's born out of Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 5. It's called the Leveret marriage, actually. And what it is, is if your brother or relative dies without having born a child to inherit his estate, you then have the responsibility of taking his wife and conceiving a child with her to carry on the lineage of your relative. That seems so awkward in our culture. But in that culture, it was in Mosaic Law. It even predated Mosaic Law because you can see how it unfolds in the life of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar, whom he treats as a prostitute. Go read that story. It's uncomfortable. But it's a leveret marriage situation. And that's what they're talking about. The kinsman redeemer is the one who takes on his relative's widow to bear a child in his, in his, in, in his relative's name so that that child can carry on his legacy can inherit his land, can keep his name in in perpetuity. I'm stumbling over words tonight. You know what I'm saying. Anyway, perpetuity. There we go. Got it. But if you don't understand the leveret marriage policy and the kinsman-redeemer role, Ruth's story seems kind of complicated. You can get, the kinsman-redeemer matters in chapter 4 as well, where Boaz is willing to be the kinsman-redeemer, but he acknowledges that there's somebody related more closely to Naomi And there's this whole process of negotiation wherein Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. 
One last thing, I know that's the bell. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Think about this. We, it, it, mean, it, it doesn't affect us at all to read that the prodigal son, when he returns, his father runs out to meet him. But that's a significant detail because in that culture, in Jewish culture, elderly men were too dignified to run anywhere. It was undignified for an elderly man, a man of standing in the community, to run. Not, it's not about whether or not they're capable. Now, I've seen Bob run. It's undignified. But that, in their culture, it was, it was undignified to run. And what the, Jesus is communicating in this comparison of God to the Father is that God loves us so much that when we return from the, the, the spiritual far country, he is so excited to have us back that God's willing to be undignified. That's kind of the idea that Jesus is trying to convey. It's a beautiful thing, but we miss that because of our culture. Anyway, that kind of context is uh, what we're talking about in, in, in investigating Scripture and trying to find the little details. Oh, one last one. Another bell ring. But think about the denarius and the talent in, the, in Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Understanding what the value is of a denarius, the value of a talent is. A denarius is a day's wage in that era. A talent, one talent is 60 days wages, I believe it is. Let me verify that before I... Move on. Oh, I ain't got it. But knowing the values between those helps you understand how much is being forgiven. I believe it is if you have 10,000 talents, you have 60 million denaris, denarii. 60 million days worth of pay. That's the ratio you've got to put in your head to understand that parable. But understanding the, the economics, the, the uh, values of those monies helps us understand the parable. Thank you for your time and attention. We will pick up here next week as we uh, finish talking a little bit about historical cultural context, and then we're going to talk about literary context. I appreciate your participation, and y'all have a blessed evening.